0: Psalm chapter 20, as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together, Psalm 20 and 21, we'll notice kind of our a couplet. They really go together well. Uh, Psalm 20 seems to be a prayer before the battle, and Psalm 21, we'll see as we look at it, kind of tends to be the prayer after the battle or recognizing God was faithful in the midst of. Of the battle, and uh, I know that you probably never have battles in your life, but just try and envision, if you could, David here, King David, on the battlefield, the children of Israel facing conflicts as a nation at times and enduring different battles themselves, and of course we all, to some degree, go through battles from time to times, and so these are sort of some battle psalms and things I think that we can glean and take to heart to help us in the midst of. Our time. So Psalm 20 tells us that it's a psalm given to the chief musician, another psalm of David. And it seems verses uh, 1 down through 5, really, we see sort of this prayer, almost like this intercession that the people were coming together and they were lifting before the Lord, asking that God would give the king as their leader success in the battle and recognizing that King David was their leader and that to the degree that he was able to lead well and succeed, providing leadership and direction for the people that were under his guidance, that it would only benefit them. And so they realized, hey, one of the things that we can do, even if we're not able to fulfill his role, we're not able to do his job, or for some of them, weren't able to be out on the battlefield directly with him, Uh, that they could stand in the gap for him and just intercede and ask that God's hand would be upon him and give him success and victory in what he did. And this is what we see as we begin the first part of the psalm. It tells us Psalm 20, verse one, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble and may the name of the God of Jacob defend you and may he send you help, it says, from the sanctuary. And strengthen you out of Zion or out of Jerusalem. And may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offerings. And then, of course, that term there, Selah, which means consider this or think upon this. So it begins with intercession. May the Lord answer you. They pray for the king. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, And of course, sometimes, uh, whether it be the battle that David was facing militarily, whether it's day to day in our lives, you know, some days just tend to be a little bit more troublesome than other days. And then sometimes it's kind of like we face that day of trouble. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter six, interestingly enough, regarding spiritual warfare, it talks about standing in the evil day. Uh, again every day to some degree has a measure of evil in this fallen world and there's some degree of spiritual opposition that we all face from time to time but then there are those times where we kind of just recognize don't we it just seems like uh, that the day just tends to be a little bit more difficult maybe darker we just sense the uh you know, effort of the enemy to bring resistance against us. And it almost seems that the Bible is referring to that when it talks about putting on the armor of God and being able to stand in the evil day. That is when you just sense, hey, this is a real day of trouble, a real day when the forces are evil, are just really seeming to come against me or come against my household or come against my ministry or come against my life. And and in those times, you know, it's like here we see being prayed for in that day of trouble. You know, there are times when we feel like, man, it just seems like this is a really, you know, t- difficult time. Like this is a troublesome day that we're going through. A season, uh, in a sense. You know, the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, and when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it's not talking about a set day. It's talking, in essence, really about a time period. So here, when he's talking about the day of trouble, could be a literal day, just a real hard day in the midst of the conflict the battle, or just a, a difficult time, a time of trouble, which we all know. And he says, look, when we're in that time, they pray, may the Lord answer you. May God hear your cry and may he intervene and meet you in the day of trouble. And may the name of the God of Jacob defend you. In other words, may God come to your defense as you're facing attack, as you're being assaulted, may God come and provide defense and protection to you. And I like verse two, they ask, may he send you king? They say, may he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. Now there in Zion was where the temple was. That's where the sanctuary of the Lord was. So that's where the temple of God was, the house of worship, where the presence of the Lord was being strongly manifested among the people. It's where the people would gather to worship and hear God's word and pray and and I like this. May God send you help from the house of God. From the house of God, may your help come from there. In other words, may, may you find help and relief and assistance from the things that are happening in God's house. And And I like this because whether it's the people of God who are being equipped and strengthened for the battles of the Lord who then come and rally behind King David to help him in the midst of fighting the Lord's battles, Or whether it's just in a spiritual sense, when we go through our times of trouble or our spiritual battles, the greatest place really many times that we can find assistance and help from is from the house of the Lord. And it's from what's happening in the house of the Lord, God's people praying and intervening. That's why it's so important that as the church that we come together for times of prayer and when there's opportunities that we take serious, that it's you know, not just the routine we go through, but that it's a real rallying point where the people of God come together in times of corporate prayer and say, you know what, there are people in our church, in our family that are in the midst of a day of trouble. They're in hard times. There are difficulties going on. There are spiritual battles. And when we come together, I believe we provide that help from the sanctuary of God where the spirit of the Lord begins to go out and begins to minister and provide assistance to people. And I like this how they say, David, may, may the Lord, may he send you help and may it come, may it find its source from the sanctuary of God to come and strengthen you and to help you when you're feeling overwhelmed that the spirit of the Lord from the prayers of God's people would come forth and help the king in that way or help any one of us in our day of trouble and may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice and this was very typical when they would come together to offer uh, you know, uh, burnt offerings to the Lord. Many times this was something done before they would go out into battle to seek God's favor. It was a way that they sought the Lord. And so this is the idea here. Remember the burnt offering or the burnt sacrifice we know particularly was the sacrifice of total consecration or full commitment to God. There were many different ways they would offer sacrifices, but the burnt offering was different from the fellowship offering, the peace offering, the sin offering. Uh, These offerings, a portion of the animal was burnt on the altar, and then at other times, a portion was eaten by the worshiper. Another time, the portion was eaten as well by the priest or the one offering the sacrifice, but in the burnt sacrifice or the burnt offering, the entire animal, the whole carcass, was consumed in the fire. And it was a picture of really complete dedication. The idea is, God, I want you to have everything. And so this is a burnt sacrifice. I am committing and consecrating and dedicating every part unto you. I want you to have everything completely, God. I don't want anything for myself or for anyone else, Lord. I want you to have it all. I'm full, this idea was kind of, I'm fully committed to you, God. I want to be fully consecrated to you. And so as the king would come and make these sacrifices before he'd go into the battle, Lord, the battle is yours. The battle belongs to you. It's your battle, Lord. I'm willing to go out and engage in the battle, but I don't want any glory, the king would say. I'm not looking for anything. God, I want you to have your way in this battle. And they say, may he remember your offerings, king. May he remember you, David, as you go out, as you offered that burnt sacrifice in verse four, because notice, because of that heart attitude of the burnt sacrifice, fully consecrated to the Lord, I think that's why verse four says, and may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. Because see, when your heart's desire is nothing more than to do what glorifies God, and to win God's battles and to advance God's cause and to do what pleases God, and you want everything for God and for his glory, and when your purpose is not your own agenda, but you want to fulfill the purposes of God, well, you know what? Those are times when, when then your desires and your purposes line up with the will of God and the plan of God, and those are the things that God then wants to answer. You know, the Bible tells us that the Lord you know, writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our heart. And the Bible tells us that, you know, God gives us the desire of our heart. Now, a lot of times people just take that and interpret it as, oh, so that means whatever my desire is, I'll just, you know, rub the cosmic genie and people sometimes want to relate to God that way. So, you know, you know, with this, you know, positive confession movement itself, well, God grants you your heart's desire. That's what it says right there in the Bible. So I want a Mercedes or I want a Lexus or this house or, you know, whatever. And so I'm just going to claim it and believe it. And if I profess it, well, it's like I rub the genie a certain way and God's got to give it to me. Well, look, I think God's a little bit more in control than to just create a bunch of crazy, spoiled children like that. What the word of God is telling us is that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires upon our hearts. That is your full delight is in the Lord. God, I just love you. And I I just want what you want. God, I don't even want my will for my life. Lord, you pick. You're a much wiser father. You know better. And I just want to please you and honor you and serve you. And and so, Lord, whatever you want. You see, when a person begins to delight themselves in the Lord, as the Bible says, like that, then God gives us the desire of our heart. In other words, God, when he sees that kind of heart, says, now that's a heart. That's soft and tender that I can write by impression my desires onto. And I can put my desires into a heart like that. And then when our desires, in essence, are really nothing more than God's desires, because God's desires have become our desires, then guess what God wants to do? God wants to give us the desire of our heart because it's really the desire of his heart. And that's a vastly different thing than just having carnal or random desires and just believing God needs to fulfill them. So as the king wanted to fulfill the Lord's purposes and he gave offerings and burnt sacrifices, his heart came into alignment with God. And so they pray how beautifully may he grant you king according to your heart's desire and may he fulfill all your purpose. As you go and fight the Lord's battles and you're seeking to do his bidding and fulfill his purposes, May he fulfill all your purposes. May he grant your desires. May he give you success and fulfill your heart's desire to wanna do the will of God. And what a wonderful thing. And what a great way to be able to pray for those whose hearts are really in alignment with the Lord, that God would bless them with that kind of favor and success to see them flourish again, whether it's fighting the Lord's battles, doing the Lord's work in ministry or whatever it may be. God bless that person fulfill their heart's desire, Lord. Give them the fulfillment of their purpose. They say, verse five, notice we, they, now you can sense it's a corporate prayer. We will rejoice in your salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Again, they would use the banners as a form of celebration, like people will use banners when they walk in parades. This is the idea they'd wave the flag or the banner as a way to testify of celebrating God's work. And they're saying, we rejoice in your salvation, God, your your deliverance, the way that you come through for us. And may the Lord, notice verse five again, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. That is all your requests. May he give them to you. Verse six, it seems now this is kind of, it seems almost to me the the king's answer. So verses one through five, he kind of sends them praying for their king, praying for the leader, the one who was guiding them for King David, and they're praying for him. And now it's almost as if the king answers in the midst of this. The Holy Spirit says, verse six, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, brings deliverance, victory, salvation to his anointed. That is his chosen one, the one that his spirit and favor is upon. And he will answer him from his holy heaven. So they say, may the Lord fulfill your petitions. And the the statement in faith there from the king, he says, I know the Lord's going to hear my prayers and I know he's going to answer. Because he's that kind of a God, he is a God who does want to help us in the day of trouble. He's a God who does want to defend us as the God of Jacob. He's a God who does send us help from the sanctuary and who does fulfill our heart's desire and all of our purpose and petition. So he says, I know he's gonna answer. I know he's gonna answer from his holy heaven. He's gonna send his divine resources. And you know, as I look at this, it kind of reminds me of this you know, kind of combination of that which is spiritual and that which is practical, because this is a prayer before King David goes out into battle and conflict. And in a sense, what you have is the prayer being answered by they. They ask in advance for God to work before the battle. They're praying. They're asking for God to work. They're asking for God's involvement and blessing upon the king and his efforts and then as the king and the army go out to battle that becomes the practical fulfillment if you would of stepping out in faith and letting god do what god has been asked to do you know sometimes we pray and 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 we say we pray and we pray and we say but then we never do anything right and and we ask and we ask and we ask and we ask and god goes i heard you are you going to act You've asked, I want to answer, but you got to act. <laughs> you got to act so I can answer now. It's like, like the Lord says, I've got all the purchase orders. They're here. They're lined up. They're piling up on my desk. I'm ready to execute some purchase orders now. And, you know, it's kind of like David with the army going out into battle where, where there comes that place where in faith, where we say, you know what? I know the Lord's going to answer. So I need to step into the battle now. I need to put my foot into the water and watch the, you know, the, the Red Sea or the Jordan River part. you know, with the saving strength of his right hand. We, it's almost as if the Lord, you know, is waiting for us to act so that he then can begin to show the fulfillment of the things we've asked for him to do. And there really is that kind of direct combination. It's not like they just prayed and then they sat back and never went out to battle. Well, you're not going to win the battle that way. They prayed, but then they had to march out onto the battlefield. And they actually had to do things and, you know, put themselves involved in the situation and swing the uh, sword and throw the spear and, you know, use their shields and and run at the enemy and actually had to engage and do things practically, trusting that God heard their prayers and giving God a chance to defend them and help them and assist them. Interesting. Verse seven. Look, this is a great reminder when it comes to battles. It says here, some trust in chariots. And summon horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen. The idea is we've defeated the enemy, but we have risen and stand upright. In other words, we've arisen and are standing upright, victorious. And why was that? Because where was their confidence? Verse seven, Their confidence was not in their own resources. It was not in their own strength or expertise. They say, verse 7, the typical thing for most people to do when they go out to battle, most armies or most individuals, would be to trust in their chariots and in their horses. Again, remember in that day, those were major components to a strong military arsenal. Your chariots, your horses, that was like your tanks and your you know nuclear weapons and and that that was all of your military strength it was measured in chariots in horses and this is the idea here is they're saying some trust in their military strength some trust in the resources that they have but we are not going to do that we're going to trust we're going to rely upon we're going to remember that's the idea remember means to think upon we're going to recall and remember and think upon in reliance the name that represents the character of a person. When you say someone's name, you think about the person. So we're going to remember the character of the Lord our God. And what they're saying is, is look, it doesn't matter what we have at our disposal, whether a whole lot or a whole little. Right, That was Israel's problem all the time. Whenever they were overconfident because they really thought, hey, look, I mean, that's a small little enemy. And I mean, look at all the chariots and horses we got. And that's just a little rinky dink army. And I mean, we don't even need to send a whole army out there. And they would rely on their chariots and their horses and their own strength and abilities. Those are the occasions where when they didn't rely upon God, but on the arm of flesh and their own abilities and resources, God would let them get drastically defeated. And they would scratch their heads and go, I don't understand. Right, because you didn't depend upon me. You tried to do it in the flesh and you tried to manipulate it and use your own resources. And then other times they'd be completely outnumbered, right? And and the other, you know, person opposed to them would have this incredible army and their chariots and horses would seem like nothing in comparison to the enemy that they were fighting. But on those occasions, they would rely, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, Lord. We don't have enough chariots. We don't have enough horses. We don't have the resources or strength or expertise to, to, to conquer and, and to overcome in this situation. But Lord, we remember that you're an awesome God and you have power and you have no limitations. And so, Lord, we're just going to remember and rely upon you. And God would give him this overwhelming victory because it would all be about the Lord. And you know, here, David recognized the reality that the, the determining factor in victory in battles was reliance upon God. It wasn't about resources at their disposal. Always remember that because it's very easy to trust in our chariots, our horses, our bank accounts, you know, all all these kind of things. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges sometimes when additional resources are at our disposal is it almost makes it difficult sometimes to rely upon and to trust the Lord. See, if you can write a check to solve your problems, you don't have to pray. True. I got a problem. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll just write a check. Now, not everybody can do that. But when people are in that situation, it makes it a little bit more difficult to look beyond that, unless maybe they have tons and tons and tons and tons of problems, and then they can't write a check anymore. But it makes it more difficult. But when you're in a spot where, unlike some, you can't trust in chariots or horses, you got to remember the Lord. you got to rely upon the Lord. But that's when you see God act at times. And you see God move. You know, I I think of our own nation from a military standpoint. And, you know, I mean, has there ever really to some degree been a real time, even in American history, where our nation has kind of found itself going, "Mm, I don't know. Our military resources in comparison to that, we really haven't faced that to to a, a real degree, I would say, as a nation become very easy for us as the united states of america to rely upon our military arsenal and and what we have at our disposal and it's very easy for our nation to trust in chariots and horses and not rely upon god but that can become the downfall of a nation real quick real quick you know when i look at the course that we're charting right now as a nation and i wouldn't you know even as god dealt with the nation of israel be surprised at some point if if god ultimately shocks the nation of america in some ways because we're trusting in the wrong thing, believing somehow in our American arrogance we're you know, able to just conquer anything and that we don't have to rely upon the Lord. And the nation of Israel learned that lesson many times over. And you know, it's a good national lesson. It's a good personal lesson for all of our lives, not to trust in chariots and horses, but to rely and remember upon the power and the name and character of our God. And that's why verse nine, it's almost as if you sense a collective unison at the end of the prayer this is almost as if now the king and the people praying for the king joined together and they say save lord save lord and they say may the king notice capitalized there the idea is they're not talking about king david there they're talking about the true king on the throne they're talking about the ultimate leader not the human leader who is guiding them as a people but king the king of kings May the king answer us, everyone, when we call. Deliver, Lord, they say, may you answer us as the King when we call. Now, you know, as you look at Psalm twenty, certainly some beautiful reminders in here of even again, as we've talked about, how Jesus says even in the New Testament, you know, that, that all things in the Psalms and the prophets and the law speak of me, and how throughout the Psalms we've seen how many times they have a beautiful you know, picture and fulfillment of the Lord Jesus himself. You know, even if we think, for example, of verse three in our Psalm here, may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Say "La!" think upon this. How beautiful does verse three not speak of not King David as they were interceding for him, but the one greater than David King Jesus. What a wonderful thing of You know, descriptive of King Jesus. May May God remember all of His offerings and accept His sacrifice. And what was Jesus' sacrifice of Himself? And it was a complete total. It was the the burnt consecration. The full as the wrath of God, the fire of God's wrath came down upon Jesus. It was a complete sacrifice. He fully dedicated Himself. In his offering of his life. And because the Lord does remember and the Lord does accept Yahweh God, the sacrifice of his son, our King Jesus, that's why we experience salvation, because the sacrifice of Christ was fully acceptable. And, you know, as we look at the Psalms at times, it's beautiful to read through them and to think about from time to time how they can reflect aspects of Jesus and his nature in different ways. Psalm 21, as I said, is the kind of Psalm after the battle. Seems it goes with it to the chief musician, another Psalm of David. This one begins, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly, how shall he rejoice? So what's the king celebrating? Not his own strength. He says, what gives me joy is knowing that though I'm weak, Lord, I'm so glad that you're really, really strong. Because David knew his own weakness and even as a king and David was a warrior on the battlefield, David knew his own weaknesses and he says, but Lord, man, I rejoice and I am joyful in your strength that you give me strength when I am just so weak and I can't handle what I'm dealing with. And in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice again, rejoicing in the salvation or deliverance of God in the same way that you and I rejoice spiritually in the salvation of of the Lord from our sins and delivering us from hell and giving us the access to heaven, we can rejoice in his salvation. He says, verse two, notice, you have given him his heart's desire and not withheld the request of his lips. So again, chapter or Psalm 20, verse four, they prayed, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. David now answers, you know what he says? God, answered your prayers for me. Because he says, verse two, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. know how wonderful to see prayer asked for and then to see prayer specifically answered. And this is the joy of actually praying and asking God to do stuff and then stepping out and stepping into the battle and having a chance to see God work and to see God actually answer prayers specifically. Hey, we prayed for that. Remember, check that out. We actually prayed for that. And God did it. Or, you know, I prayed, Lord, this is what's on my heart. And Lord, if this lines up with your heart, Lord, please, I believe this is your heart. I believe it's your will. And then like David to be on the side of the side of that and say, Lord, you've given me my heart's desire. Wow, Lord, you actually gave me my very heart. That desire was from you. Because see, if the desire is from the Lord, then he wants to fulfill it. You know, that's why the Bible tells us from a New Testament perspective as well. The Bible tells us that, that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And then it says, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So uh, the New Testament teaches us that we're to work out, not work for our salvation. That's unbiblical, but to work out our salvation. In other words, God saved you not just to go to heaven. He actually saved you for a purpose. Beyond just going to heaven, because if it was just for you to go to heaven, think about it, God would have a lot less headache if He just saved you and He just killed you. Right? I mean, seriously. It'd be a lot less headache, wouldn't it? I mean, think from God's perspective. He's saved. He's ready for eternity. I don't need the insurance paperwork. Just bring him to heaven. Saved. Woo, saved. Woo. But God doesn't do that. He saves us. Our all, destiny is heaven. But he saves us and leaves us here because there's a race for us to run and there are things for us to do. And Paul says, I haven't yet apprehended all that I was apprehended for. And so in the meantime, we're to work out our own salvation. That is, you're to work out the purpose for which God saved you. He saved you as a man or as a woman for a specific reason. He knows your background, your personality, where you're at in life, all the people you're connected to, your opportunities, and, and access, and so God saves you because oh, when I save her, well, I got some really great ideas when I save her. Or when I save him, I could do this through him and I could do that through him. So the Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, work out what God's worked in. And then it says this, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So God works his desires into us that we might then work those desires out. And when that's the case and we're responding to that, we can say, Lord, you've given me my heart's desire. You haven't withheld the request of my lips. And God says, right, the reason why is because you came into alignment with my desires. And I had put those desires into your heart so that you would walk those things out. And so when you started praying, God, I had this desire in my heart, God's going, all oh, Perfect. Yeah, that's my, I put that in there. Where do you think that idea came from? Where do you think that desire came from? And what a wonderful thing that as our hearts are in right place before the Lord that he begins to do that. And then we can pray for things and we can see God give us our heart's desire because really it was his desire. It wasn't a fleshly desire, it was God's desire. He put in there and, and we're just willing and acting according to his purpose. And that's why he doesn't withhold at times the request of our lips if it's actually the very thing that he wants to fulfill. And we can celebrate in that. And David was experiencing that reality as we can as well. Verse three says, for you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. So David here celebrating how many times God's goodness was displayed in his life. God, you've set a crown of gold upon my head. And I like what he says, verse three, Lord, you meet him with the blessings of goodness, the blessings of goodness, of grace, of good things in his life. And David says, Lord, I don't have to go chase for your blessings. I don't have to go search for your blessings. It's almost as if David's saying, Lord, I don't even have to try and earn your blessings. You come and meet me with the blessings of your goodness. See, that's grace, right? <laughs> that's grace david's gonna say in psalm 23 right around the corner from this he's gonna say uh, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life again god is so good and god actually biblically wants to be gracious and bless our lives so much that his grace and goodness actually follows us he comes and meets us david says i didn't have to go search for god's goodness God was meeting me with his goodness. It was like God would show up again. Hey, I want to do something good for you. And you go, I'm so unworthy. And he goes, I know, that's why it's called grace. <laughs> and, and, and when the Lord does good stuff for us, at times we're shocked and surprised but what God is doing, and David knew it so many times, Lord, you met me again with the blessings of your goodness wow, Lord, I just, I can't believe it. Here you are blessing me again, being so good to me again. But again, that's what makes us fall in love with the Lord because of how good and kind he is to us as people. He says, verse four, he asked life from you, that is the king, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. God spared David's life on the battlefield many times. The Lord preserved him wherever he went, the Bible tells us in conflict he asked god spare my life and he says lord you continue to do it you gave me life continually but interesting he says length of days forever and ever perhaps in some ways the holy spirit pointing beyond even the very reality of physical life life eternal and you know i read verse 4 and it speaks to me exactly of what happens in salvation right we ask for life from god and he gives us life as a gift length of days forever and ever psalm or not psalm uh, romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us the wages of sin is death or what we deserve or earn for our sin is death spiritual death separation from god but the gift of god free gift of god is eternal life through christ jesus our lord but it's a free gift of god it's a gift of grace but you got to ask for it because it's a gift you got to acknowledge your sinfulness and say, Lord, I want your gift. Give me the gift of eternal life. And he will give that gift to you if you ask for it by faith, by trusting in Christ, length of days, eternal life forever and ever. Verse 5, his glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him the most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. You know, isn't it a wonderful thing to recognize David says here that Lord, you have not only blessed me, Lord, not only have you given me honor and majesty, but but Lord, you've made me blessed. And notice, not just blessed now. You see what verse 6 is you've made me most blessed forever. You know, if you are a child of God or in relationship with God, it's not just about having a blessed life now on earth. You're going to experience a blessed existence forever forever and the wonderful thing is it only gets better when we get into glory the blessings of god and the experience of god the absence of sin and struggle and suffering and hardship will just make being blessed forever greater and greater and david says lord even when i was down or discouraged lord you've made me exceedingly glad with your presence with your presence It was the presence of the Lord that brought David gladness in his life. And, you know, David, just like you and I, had his ups and downs. David had his share of difficulties. We read his life throughout the books of the Old Testament. And and certainly there were hardships and difficulties. There were times when David was down in the dumps. David had family problems. David dealt with death of loved ones and difficulties and his own son Absalom rebelling against him and the hassles of Saul. I I mean, David dealt with a lot of difficulties, a lot of hardships. And you know, when we go through hardships and difficulties, what does it tend to do? It makes us sad and discouraged. We go through times of heartache and difficulty and we feel down in the dumps and where do you get lifted up well david says lord you've made you have made me exceedingly glad with your presence that is as david spent time in the presence of the lord seeking god supernaturally the lord brought back joy and gladness to his life because that's not dependent upon circumstances it's an experience of having an encounter with god that god's spirit can bring joy Even in the times when our hearts are heavy or we're going through hardships, and how wonderful. And certainly there have been times in our life where we can look back and realize, that's what it was, Lord, when I came into your presence. When I got into your presence, when I got alone with you and started praying or just worshiping and singing songs or reading your word or came into the house of the Lord, man, Lord, it's amazing how you just lifted my spirits again. And you made me exceedingly glad in the midst of difficult times. And it was just your presence, Lord, that brought that into my life through an encounter with God. Verse seven, he says, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the mercy of the Lord most high, he shall not be moved. My confidence in you, God. And he says, it's by being rooted in you that I'm stable. I won't be moved because of your mercy and being that stabilizing influence in my life. Now, for it comes to verse eight and down through verse 12. Now he begins to speak about, uh, the the victories and almost kind of looking ahead to victories and in some ways if verses you might say one through seven in some ways are picturesque of sort of jesus in his first coming as the king and some of the things that god did in the earthly life of the lord jesus during a time of his humanity and certainly we can think upon that from verses one through seven then verses eight through twelve almost seem to be a reflection of the future victories of jesus as he comes back as a righteous and victorious ruling king in his second coming. It almost kind of pictures the second coming of Christ in some ways, verses eight through 12, as David talks about future victories as he would fight as a king. He says, verse eight, your hand will find all of notice. He says, God, your enemies. God, my enemies really aren't my enemies, they're your enemies, because they're the things that threaten me as your son and your servant. So Lord, may your hand find all your enemies and may your right hand find those who hate you. You know, sad, those, David realized there are people who hate God. Not just that are apathetic towards God, not just that are uninterested in God. There are people that actually, he's talking about the Lord, hate you. There are people that hate God, that actually have hatred and animosity towards God. And guess what happens? When people hate God, they hate the people of God. That's why Jesus said in, in John's Gospel, chapter 15 there, where he was uh, writing, chapter 15, 16, that region there where Jesus says, look, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And if you didn't belong to me, they wouldn't hate you. But because you do belong to me, that's where that hatred stems from. And as representatives of the Lord, we need to realize sometimes the, you know, the animosity and the hatred and think, man, wh- why is it that there is such venomous hatred towards the things of God, the word of God and what its principles state and truths, you know, convey and, and the people of God and Christians, where does that hatred come from? Well, it comes from an undercurrent of a spirit that's at work in the lives of certain people who literally hate the Lord. They're just enemies of God and they hate the Lord. And so David hears, Lord, may your right hand find those who hate you And notice he says, may you deal with them, Lord. They're your enemies. Ultimately, you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. Not good to be on the side of God's anger. The Lord, he says, shall swallow them up in his wrath. And the fire shall devour them. The wrath of God, judging his enemies that hated him. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth. Their descendants from among the sons of men, for they intended evil, notice, against you. They're seeking to bring evil against you, God. It may play itself out in the lives of God's people, but he says, ultimately, God, they're intending evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. They weren't successful, though they tried to overrule God. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces And so the idea is, again, the arrows, pulling back the arrow, it's a picture of firing a weapon against the enemy to conquer them. I find it very picturesque, verse 11 again, as he's talking about here the the king victoriously conquering his enemies and his wrath overcoming his enemies. They intended evil against the king. They They devised, verse 11, a plot which they were not able to perform in their hatred against the king. Now, as David's saying these things in a literal sense, in a spiritual sense, they remind us in many ways, I think, of Revelation chapter 19. Let me read to you there. As Jesus comes back as the king of kings and lord of lords in his triumphant victorious return to this earth, the Bible tells us, that the Antichrist and the kings of the earth are all going to rally together there in in the valley of Megiddo in the Battle of Armageddon and and try and actually fight off Jesus. We're going to get all of our weapons and all of our arsenal and every king on the earth. That's it. We are done with God. He's going to try and come back and take over this earth. Does he know how much military arsenal we have? That's it. We're going to fight God and get rid of him and as Jesus returns in a second coming it tells us here in our psalm they devised a plot which they were not able to perform revelation 19 tells us this i saw the beast that is a reference of course to the you know false prophet and the antichrist and his whole group the kings of the earth listen and their armies gathered together to make war to make war imagine that war Against him who sat on the horse and against his army, referring to Lord Jesus coming back in his glorified form with all the armies of heaven, you and I returning with him as his saints in his second coming to take over the earth. They sought to make war against him. Verse 20 says, and the beast was captured, the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. These two who had brought chaos on the earth for the last seven years, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So look at that. All the armies of the earth, come together under the Antichrist and the false prophet and say, that's it, we're gonna stage a war. We've got a plot. We are gonna overthrow this king trying to return and take over this earth. And it says they all gathered together, but they devise a plot which they weren't able to perform because Jesus returns. And it says with the sword that goes out of his mouth, you know what that speaks of? His word. I'd love to know what the word is. I mean, what does he just say? Really? Really? And are done. Or does he just say? Done. Just the word of his mouth. Just the word of his mouth. He destroys all the efforts of humanity, devising plots to try and overthrow him because of his great victory and his great power. You know, it's really, really encouraging. It isn't to know that despite what we deal with in this life, to know that if you're following Jesus, you're on the winning team. You're on the winning team. And no matter what the battle looks like here and how we have to keep battling, we are following the right king. In the end, our king is going to subdue all of his enemies and he's going to unfortunately have to justly unleash his wrath and all the plots of evil and hatred towards God and hatred towards what's moral and right and good and righteous and that which is Christian, it's all going to be dealt with. Our king is one day going to deal with that and make everything right. And that's why verse 13, the psalmist celebrate saying, be exalted, be lifted up, be magnified, O Lord, in your own strength. And then what's the refrain? We will sing and praise your power. Lord, when we think about your power, it makes us wanna sing and it makes us wanna praise your power so that you can be exalted and you can be honored. Because see, in, in Psalm 22, which we'll look at next time, he's gonna say that God is enthroned in the praises of his people. That when God's people begin to praise him and to sing and honor him, there's something about that, there's something very powerful happens as we celebrate God's power, that God is enthroned. We, we enthrone God and we lift him up and exalt him as we come together. Well, we're gonna stop there this evening. Why don't we stand together? Read ahead Psalm 22. I really didn't wanna try and rush through Psalm 22, just because obviously one of the greatest Old Testament passages that we have speaking to us prophetically about the crucifixion of Christ. A thousand years before the crucifixion ever took place, the Holy Spirit was speaking through David things prophetically of the sufferings of Christ as the Messiah. Very, very picturesque, one of the greatest prophetic passages descriptions we have of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, we'll look at that next time together. Let's pray. Father, thank you.